In 2013, when New York City narcotics agents announced the unusual indictment of five Brooklyn men, this one did stand out. In an article in the Jewish Journal, Talia Labine discusses the 2013 bust of a New York City drug ring. She writes, cocaine, oxycodone, heroin, whatever your drug, they had it for you. But what stood out against the backdrop of every other New York City drug bust was that these men were charged, they, they, they were members of a Sabbath-observant drug ring. Though cavalier about New York's drug laws and cavalier about the health and the very lives of their clients, the group was scrupulous about observing the Jewish Sabbath. Text messages from members of the gang show them alerting their clientele of their weekly sundown to sunset hiatus. Text messages which were used as evidence and testimony against the group included group chats to clients, quote, we're closing 7.30 p.m. on the dot and we'll reopen Saturday 8.15 on the dot, so if you need anything now, you have 45 minutes to get what you want. The name of the sting operation that led to the drug bust was only after sundown. They could be so legalistic in obeying the Sabbath, even tacking on an extra 45 minutes. It was 24 hours and 45 minutes, you know, to, to, just to make sure that they didn't accidentally violate the Sabbath. And at the same time, they were contributing to the addiction, illness, and deaths of human beings made in God's image. How can we be such sticklers about one rule and miss the bigger picture? It's something that we're all capable of, religious or irreligious. It's universal in human nature. And we're going to read about it and Jesus' interaction with it in the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. This is beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Now, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read that David, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's the religious leaders, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to him, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they, the religious leaders, were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
What were the disciples confronted with? I mean, look at what these religious leaders were doing. You know, we read that as, you know, the, the, the disciples were walking through grain fields, they, they were hungry, and so they would just pick a little piece of grain, rub it in their hand, pop it in their mouth, uh, so that they wouldn't be hungry. And the Pharisees showed up. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now note, they weren't accusing them of stealing somebody's grain. It was legal to eat grain along a path. That was gleaning. Uh, it, it was, you know, they were accusing them of violating the Sabbath commandment. Now, how so? Um, if you actually look at Jewish law in the Old Testament, the Sabbath regu regulations um, said that you should do no work on the Sabbath, that you shouldn't have your, your manservant or maidservant do any work on the Sabbath, or even the foreigner who's living with you. Um, rather, you should, should rest, and you shouldn't light a fire in your house, meaning you should if you have to cook a meal, you should cook it in advance and not spend the day fixing food all day, um, that it would be holy to the Lord. Uh, now, these religious leaders interpreted grabbing a berry off a bush as work or picking grain and eating it as work, and therefore they interpreted it as a violation of the Sabbath command against working on the Sabbath. Um, this is clearly going way beyond what the Bible said, uh, what can we observe about this kind of legalism? Because just looking at this interaction right here, you can learn a lot about how legalism works. Uh, legalism, first of all, builds a fence around the law. The law said, don't do any work. But the uh, Jewish Mishnah added 39, 40 minus 1, 39 specific commands of everything you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Um, you know, if the Bible, for example, says not to lust after a woman, legalists will tend to say, well, then a man shouldn't even be in an unchaperoned presence of a woman. Uh, you know, it's not that you're making rules for yourself because you know your own weaknesses and you know what your own temptations are, and so you have your own kind of protective guidelines, certain places that you don't go, websites you don't touch, you know, things that you don't do that go beyond Scripture, but it's because you know you might fall or you might trip up or do something you'll regret later that might dishonor God. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making rules for everybody else about what they're allowed to do, building a fence around the law. That's legalism. And the Bible warns us against adding to what God has said, uh, just as it warns us against subtracting from what God has said. But the legalist is afraid that someone somewhere somehow might sin, therefore they add a rule. And, of course, within uh, Pharisaical Judaism, the rules multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and became incredibly burdensome. Um, the Bible says don't work on the Sabbath. But here they're saying don't even pick a berry off a bush and pop it in your mouth or else you're violating the Sabbath. Um, you know, according to the Jewish Mishnah, which was developed later but summarized Pharisaical teaching, um, specifically the disciples were reaping threshing, winnowing, and preparing food, a quadruple violation of the Pharisees' um, rules. Uh, and this isn't just a Jewish thing. Christian history is filled with legalistic fences around the law. I remember in 1999, I was uh, serving um, uh, the church in eastern Ukraine at a, a seminary in Donetsk, and um, the Russian Baptists there, um, you know, they were convinced that it was always a sin for a woman to wear makeup. And uh, I figured I'd kind of, you know, like prod that a little bit because I was teaching Christian ethics and I wanted them to understand that you should probably be 
focus on accommodating and things like that, not on whether somebody feels they need makeup, you know. Um, but, uh, but I responded by pointing them to the Bible where it says that Esther, queen, wore makeup. They told me Esther was a prostitute. That's how legalism works. I was speechless. I then pointed them to the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, where the bride is praised for her cheeks like pomegranates, which was a reference to the, the rouge that Egyptian women would paint on their face, uh, praising her for it. And they were a little squishy and uncertain. And then I told them, my mother wears makeup. And then they shut up, because they were not going to offend their teacher, their guest, uh, by bringing his mother into it, which, um, but, but, you know, it seemed to do the trick. Um, but legalism, it always wants to build a fence around the wall of the law because one woman in her situation might be tempted to vanity, therefore, makeup's forbidden. Um, it's building a fence around the law. You know how this goes. You go to a barn dance, you don't go to a square dance. You, you go to an R-rated movie, not a G-rated movie. You don't listen, you, you don't go to an R-rated movie, you go to a G-rated movie. You don't listen to secular music, you listen to Christian music. You, you don't wear a skirt, you wear a long dress. You don't say gay, you say same-sex attracted. You don't drink whiskey, you drink Sanka. These are good reasons for doing all of these. Um, I haven't had Sanka in a long time. I, I don't even know if they still make it. But, um, you know, depending on what your particular weaknesses are, you might follow any of these uh, based on what you think God wants you to do in your circumstance, in your situation, with your heart. But... That's where Christian discernment comes into play. That's where Christian freedom comes into play. But legalism doesn't want complexities of individual Christian discernment. It wants a rule, a hard and fast rule, a measurable rule that builds a fence around the law so that no one can get even close to violating what God forbids. Uh, so legalism, we see, builds a fence around the law. That's what the Pharisees were doing here. They were saying, you know, we, we don't even, we don't know where the line is between, you know, popping a strawberry and plucking it in your mouth and fixing a meal for 20 people. And so we're going to say, don't do any of it. Uh, building a fence around the law. Legalism also focuses on external measurable things, and there's a reason for that. You know, you look at the kinds of, of legalistic rules that religious people throughout history have developed, and they all focus on external things. They don't focus on whether you're resting on the Sabbath. They're focused on what, how many berries you're picking. You know, they're not focused on, on the inward things of the heart, but rather on things that are measurable, like picking grain while walking. They seldom deal with matters of the heart, what we delight in, coveting, being sensitive to the needs of others, being patient. Um, they tend to deal with external things about how you dress, who you spend time with, places you go, things you eat, things you drink, the language you use to describe things, where you send your kids to school, uh, stuff like that. And that's because legalism is always seeking a way to quantify or measure spiritual growth. Um, real spiritual growth is very hard to measure. Maybe somebody else in you can say, Greg, you know, 10 years ago, you would have blown up in anger if you were in the situation you were just in. That's somebody measuring my spiritual growth, saying I see long-term change in your heart level. But... Um, but it's hard to measure spiritual growth. And so legalism wants something that's easy, something you can measure. How long is your dress? Which words did you use? Uh, you know, uh, 
things that are measurable because legalism is part of a internal drive to prove to myself and to others that I'm one of the good people and not one of those sinners out there. Um, if I can, you know, just jump through the right hoops, see the right kinds of movies, listen to the right kind of music, say the right things, have the right, you know, the right kind of hair and the right clothing, all of this, and, and, and go to all the right meetings and always look presentable, then everybody will know I'm one of the good people. Uh, it's this self-justifying drive that's in the human heart to try to prove that I'm worthy. Worthy to God, worthy to God's people, worthy to other people, worthy to myself even. Um, and that ultimately impacts uh, the believer's ability to, to love other people. Because if you're constantly trying to prove to yourself that you're one of the good people, then what are you going to be doing to all the people who don't keep your rules? You know, you're going to be judging them. Uh, and we see here, legalists see it as their prerogative to police everybody else. You see it, I mean, the Pharisees, what are you... Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I mean, any American would have said, what business is it of yours? You are not the boss of me. But, but you know, they just assumed it was their right to interrogate, their right to judge, their right to, to challenge, because legalists can't sit back quietly when something happens that they don't approve of. They're going to find some way to voice their displeasure. Um, and that's how we see it here, because legalism is always trying to build a fence around the law. It's focused on external measurable things so that we can measure our, our spiritual growth and it ha takes upon itself a posture of, of evaluating everyone else. This is an, an accusation they're making on, on one in one sense against the disciples, but because Jesus was with them, the real accusation wasn't, why are you doing something that's unlawful? It's Jesus, why are you letting your followers do something that's unlawful? on the Sabbath. So they're really after Jesus. Um, and, and legalism is far more pervasive than we realize. Um, in her book, Give Them Grace, Elise Fitzpatrick says, the primary reason the majority of kids from Christian homes stray from the faith is that they never really heard it or had it to begin with. Scratch the surface of the faith of the young people around you and you might find a disturbing deficiency of understanding of even the most basic tenets of Christianity. She writes, this is illustrated by a conversation I recently had with a young woman in her early 20s who had been raised in a Christian home and had attended church for most of her life. After assuring me that she was indeed saved, I asked her, what does it mean to be a Christian? She replied, it means you ask Jesus in your heart. Yes, all right, but what does that mean? Well, it means you ask Jesus to forgive you. Okay, but what do you ask him to forgive you for? Bad things? I, I guess you ask him to forgive you for bad things, like sins you do. Like what? A deer in the headlights stared back at me, she writes. I thought I'd try a different tack. Why would Jesus forgive you? She fidgeted. Um, because you ask him? I asked, what do you think God wants you to know? And she beamed. He wants me to know that I should love myself and that there's nothing I can do, I can't do, if I think I can do it. And what does God want from you, I asked. He wants me to do good stuff. You know, be nice to others and don't hang around with bad people. She concludes, apparently, 
we've transformed the holy, terrifying, magnificent, and loving God of the Bible into Santa and his elves. And instead of transmitting the gloriously liberating and life-changing truths of the gospel, we've taught our children that what God wants from us is morality. We've told them that being good, at least outwardly, is the be-all and end-all of their faith. And this isn't the gospel. We're not handing down Christianity. You see, legalism is pervasive. It's everywhere. And when we instead hand down a legalistic list of rules, we create souls that are lacking in grace. And legalism always does this, I say, because it's part of this human effort of self-salvation. Legalism can't stop. It's the opposite of the gospel. To stop would be to throw away everything you think makes you one of the good people. And, and I'll add secular, progressive legalism does this every bit as much as religious Christian legalism. It's a human weakness. When a shopper in Whole Foods or wherever looks down in disgust at the elderly shopper who's putting the non-organic produce in her shopping cart, that's legalism. And that elderly shopper probably grew up growing her own vegetables instead of having them, you know, her, instead of having organic vegetables shipped in a gas-guzzling, diesel-fume spewing tanker truck from California, 4,000 miles away, to Whole Foods. Um, you know, legalism comes in every flavor. We're all capable of it. It's not merely a religious thing. It's this human need to prove that I'm one of the good people instead of one of the fallen people in need of a savior. And legalism has no power to change a life. You know, it didn't turn these Pharisees into liberated souls overflowing with love and understanding and compassion and mercy. It made them narrow. It made them critical. It made them harsh. It made them mind everybody's business but their own. It made them judgmental. It made them divisive. And that's because man-made rules cannot change our hearts which need to be softened by God's grace. This is what Elizabeth read from Colossians 2 earlier, where Paul says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says these rules, man-made rules, are destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, he says, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You could make a hundred thousand human rules and follow all hundred thousand of them perfectly, and God says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Did you hear that? They lack any value. Don't let somebody present legalism as, as, as anything other than what it is, which is a counterfeit Christianity that is designed to crush the soul because it keeps you from grace. The disciples are confronted by legalism masquerading as the truth. And so how does Jesus respond to this? Well, first of all, he points to biblical authority. He answers them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry. And he talks about how David went into the house of God and took the consecrated showbread off of the altar and gave it to his, 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 his people so that they could eat because they were starving. And, and so what Jesus is saying is, uh, even if eating 
grain from a field were breaking the Sabbath, which it's not, it would still be okay because you're allowed to break ceremonial laws if there's a human need to love and care for people, as there was when David saw the hunger of his men and saw the only solution, which meant doing something ceremonially improper. Jesus is here saying, I'm just like King David. My disciples are just like David's men. I know they're hungry, and it's better to work on the Sabbath in this minimal way than to have your friends go hungry. Jesus' words are more pointed than what our English translations reveal. Daryl Bach says, the words, uh, uh, Jesus words the question in a way to suggest rebuke. The participle, uh, the particle expects a, a positive reply. Surely you've read, have you not? The Pharisees are familiar with the biblical account of David. They know the story, but they miss the point of it. Law must submit to need. Put another way, law is designed to prevent. Law is not designed to pre- prevent us from meeting basic human needs. The law was never intended to be interpreted that rigorously, such that it would exclude compassion in a situation where somebody's hungry. I remember 20 years ago watching on CNN. March 11, 2002, as a fire broke out at a girls' school in Mecca, the holy city of Saudi Arabia. Members of the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice, the so-called religious police, barred the exits of the school as it burned down. They prevented the schoolgirls from escaping their own burning building. The religious police, when fire fighters showed up to put out the fire, they refused to allow them to enter the school grounds because the students were prepared for bed and therefore not covered in their abayas and headscarves. Fifteen young women died in a completely preventable way because religious leaders were more concerned about seeing an ankle of a woman than they were about the very lives of the young women that were lost. Jesus is here arguing that even if his disciples were by some stretch breaking the Sabbath by eating, their humanity is a higher priority than the ceremonial law against working on the Sabbath. Jesus proves his point from the Bible. And having made his point from Scripture and rebuking these religious leaders for their lack of biblical understanding and their lack of compassion, Jesus could have stopped there. His case was made. It was decisively made. But Jesus didn't stop there. No. Jesus went on to make a shocking claim. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus had already identified himself as the Son of Man. And he's just claimed to have the authority to single-handedly interpret what is and is not appropriate on the Sabbath, the Old Testament Sabbath. This is a personal claim that Jesus is taking upon himself the prerogatives of God alone. Because remember, you know, who, who was the Lord of the, the Sabbath? You know, God was Lord of the Sabbath. It was because God created for six days and rested on the seventh that the seventh day became the Sabbath. The seventh day became holy. And Jesus is always making these implicit claims to be divine. We've already seen earlier in Luke's gospel that Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins against God alone and that his enemies understood him to be claiming to be equal with God and therefore committing blasphemy. 
we've seen elsewhere where Jesus, you know, takes on these prerogatives. In Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus claimed to be one greater than the temple. Well, what was the temple? On the Temple Mount in Jerusalem with the holy place and the most holy place and, 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 and behind that, you know, the holy of holies, behind the, 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 the screen uh, where God himself resided? Jesus is saying, the house that God lives in, I'm greater than that. The only one thing that could be greater than God's house, what's that? God himself. That's why in Matthew 28, Jesus' followers worshiped him. In his parables, Jesus presents himself as the king or the king's son in the parables, that being the God figure within these stories. Jesus claims that he's the one who's going to judge all humanity at the end of time. He calls himself the Son of Man to identify himself as the divine figure from Daniel's prophecy who is eternal and who will rule forever. Jesus responds to the legalism of the religious leaders by claiming biblical authority, but also by claiming his own authority as Lord of the Sabbath, that is, as the creator himself. And what that means, friends, is that there can be no neutrality with Jesus. Uh, when somebody uh, makes a claim as bold as this, you know, there are limited options what you can do with that. Um, you know, you, you, C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in Mere Christianity, you know, where he says, I, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, Lewis writes, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But you must not Come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What about you? Jesus makes this claim upon his church. He makes this claim upon on all of humanity as Lord, as Savior, as resurrected one before whom we must all bow. What's your, what's your heart doing with Jesus? What are you doing with him? Is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? Or is he your Lord? What are you doing with Jesus? The religious leaders showed what they were doing with Jesus. They were spying on him, um, trying to catch him. Uh, so they were watching him closely, and then later they watched him. And the term is a sinister one. It's, it's the term that's used of watching out of the corner of your eye, so you pretend not to be watching, but you're actually like watching. Um, they're trying to trap him because they've already decided he is a demon. Jesus saw a man in great need. He had great compassion on him. Um, and, uh, and they want Jesus dead. Um, you know, the Pharisees' concern was the law. Um, and when Jesus healed this man, stretched out his hand and healed him, it says that the religious leaders were furious. They were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Throughout, the religious leaders are condemnatory, judgmental, forbidding grace on the Sabbath. Um, Jesus 
handling of the Sabbath is a threat to their religion. It's a threat to their self-righteousness. It's a threat to the very platform on which they have built their identity as the good people who don't need a savior. Uh, Jesus threatened that human project to prove that we're one of the good people. Uh, if their man-made rules were thrown out, if their fence around the law is thrown out, then it didn't, and if they, they therefore weren't better than anybody else, if their obedience to their Sabbath regulations didn't make them better than other people, then, then Jesus has just pulled out from underneath them the entire rug upon which they have built their religious life. They would become a zero. They would become sinners. Just common sinners in need of a savior. A man with a shriveled hand also showed his response to Jesus when Jesus commanded him, stretch out your hand. He obeyed. He trusted Jesus. Matthew and Mark's gospel actually omit the, the man's response, uh, but, but Luke includes it for emphasis to, to, to show this man's heart. This helpless man is trusting Jesus' word. He trusts Jesus' good intentions. He believes Jesus has a power to heal him. His heart is open and receptive to Jesus in a posture of humble, faith-filled reception. He is willing to receive grace from Christ. He's not listing off his spiritual accomplishments. He's, he has nothing to prove. He has nothing to offer except his shriveled hand. When he looked around at them all, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. The healing is God's endorsement of Jesus' teaching about the law. The law of God, you know, God has, has been given not to prevent us from love, but to enable us to love. And Jesus came to put an end to this entire human religious project of making ourselves good people by obeying extra rules, building fences around the law through all of our legalistic self-effort. Jesus came to pull that rug out from under us because we all need that rug pulled out from under us because we cannot be saved unless we are filthy horrible, wretched sinners made in God's image, but having violated his commands because Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was never called a friend of the good people. The good people are the ones who lobbied for his death. Yeah, he's a friend of sinners. And to own that, to know that I am so much less than the best of humanity, at my best, my motives are always mixed. I haven't loved God with all of my heart for 10 seconds. I am that, I am that kind of guy. That's the kind of guy that Jesus saves. In his mercy, Jesus pulls out from under us our self-righteousness so that all we have left is the gospel. Friends, what are you doing right now with Jesus? Lisa Brockman in Christianity Today shares her testimony of leaving the legalism that she experienced within the Mormon church to discover instead the grace of Jesus. She writes, as a sixth-generation Mormon girl, I believed that the Mormon church was the one true church of God. I believed Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God. By age six, I was convinced that having a temple marriage and faithfully obeying Mormon regulations would qualify me to spend eternity in the highest heaven, the celestial kingdom. There, I would exalt into godhood and bear spirit children, and this was my greatest dream. But there were temptations to resist. Throughout high school, Mormon friends of mine began drifting into the world of partying. Alcohol seemed to release them from the striving and shame that comes with our performance-based love. 
For three years, I resisted, feeling like a pressure cooker of unworthiness waiting to explode. And then, as a senior, I gave up resisting. I jumped into the party world with the same passion I brought the rest of my life, funneling beer without restraint. Yet, even as I felt liberated from Mormon legalism, I didn't waver from believing that the Mormon church was God's true church. During my freshman year at the University of Utah, I met a guy named Gary. And Gary told me he was a Jesus follower, not a Mormon. For the first month of our relationship, we avoided the subject of religion. And then, on a wintry December day, Gary cracked open the door of his conversation. He asked, how do you know Mormonism is true? I had never heard this question before. He continued, have you looked into the historicity of Mormonism? How do you know that Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God? How do you know the Book of Mormon is God's word? More questions that had never crossed my mind, and within minutes, my unease turned into terror. What had felt like a firm foundation was dissolving into quicksand. Nevertheless, our affection for each other was growing, and so we knew this lingering division needed to be addressed right now, and so we agreed to study the Bible together. And it only took one Bible study to send me into a tailspin. I was shocked to find several crucial disparities between biblical and Mormon teachings. For five months, I battled with Gary and with the Bible, defending Mormonism with passion. And yet my fortress began to crumble as I compared the historical authenticity of Mormonism and Joseph Smith with that of the Bible. This was devastating and infuriating, she writes. At the same time, it opened my mind to the biblical view of my nature, sinful, not divine. It also opened my mind to a better understanding of God's nature. Three persons in one God, the Father being spirit instead of flesh and bones. The Mormon God was a man who worked his way up into godhood, but the biblical God had always been God, unchanging and eternal. I struggled to wrap my mind around this. And I saw, too, that God was inviting me to walk into his kingdom through trust in Jesus. Covered in Christ's righteousness, I would always be worthy of the Father's delight and presence. But rejecting the faith of my forebears and risking the wrath of my family terrified me. I wanted further assurance that I was right in taking this plunge. After five more months of research, I was still wrestling with the idea of a Trinitarian God. And one day, as I sat in bed conflicted, God drew near to me in a, in a vision. And I saw a sea of people around Jesus who sat on a throne, and they all bowed before him, and they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And as they worshipped, I fell to my face, and I wept, and I received Jesus in my heart, and I walked into his kingdom, and I was free of the shame that had suffocated me for 18 years. On my 21st birthday, after foolishly consuming large quantities of alcohol, I spent the night fending off drunk guys who wanted to take me home. I steadied a friend's forehead as she vomited into a toilet of a urine-soaked bathroom. I craved a different kind of life. And that same December night, I returned home and fell face down before God. With fists clenched and tears streaming, I offered each of my failings, each of my weaknesses, each of my sins to him, inviting him to have his way in my heart, in my mind, and with my body. I asked him to free me to live fully surrendered to Jesus, the one who gives life. And when I awoke the next morning, 
I felt like a new creation, as if God had performed a total heart and mind transplant. I was released, and peace filled my entire being. And the Mormon girl inside me breathed a sigh of relief, set free from the burden of proving myself worthy. I rested in the arms of the one who had loved me enough to cover me with the worthiness of his own son. Let's pray.